Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. As I pick cases, I try to vary the location and time period of the cases. And while new cases are much easier to research, I don't mind going back into history every once in a while to see how things like crime and then the police response procedure and tactics and even the coverage of the events have evolved over the years. And I am willing to look into cases that fans or listeners uh, suggest for me. So far, I haven't received any of those requests. So whether you're one of my American listeners or international listeners, uh, if you want to, I'll give you the contact information here shortly. Uh, reach out to me. Let me know of a, a local case of yours or a case that you've been hoping that I would cover. And I'll start compiling a list of those cases and then cover them. But in the meantime, I just kind of jump around the country and around the world and then uh, through time to, to find cases to cover. So today's case is one of those we're going to go back in history. And I think it's a good study in the development of a killer over time and how much an injury or illness can affect a killer's mindset. But before we get into the case... If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Now, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. When people say the wheels of government move slow, no more proof is needed than the time it took to build the University of Texas. The school was first mentioned in 1827 when Texas was still part of Mexico. The Mexican Constitution promised its citizens to supply education at all levels, and while a university in the region was promised, the Mexican government failed to make any progress on the school. In 1836, Texas gained its independence from Mexico, and under their own Constitution of the Republic, the government once again promised a school, but after almost nine years of talk, nothing was accomplished. Then Texas was annexed into the United States in 1845 and their new constitution left out the government's responsibility to provide education. And it would take around 13 years for the government to get around to addressing the issue. And just as it seemed progress was going to be made, money that had been set aside for building the school was diverted to fund military assistance in protecting settlers in western Texas from Native American attacks. And before more money could be raised, Texas joined the Confederacy and found themselves in serious debt at the end of the Civil War. It would not be until 1876 that the state was in a financial situation to fund a school, and the citizens of Texas would finally be on the path to higher education. Money and land was set aside, and in 1883, the University of Texas Austin was established. After 56 years and technically five governments, higher education had finally arrived in Texas. And the University of Texas Austin may have had an extremely long gestation, but it quickly grew into a highly respected research university. The school now has seven museums, 17 libraries, and an observatory, 
Its alumni include 13 Nobel Prize winners, four Pulitzer Prize winners, and 155 Olympic medalists among its former athletes. But one student of University of Texas Austin is infamous for something much less celebrated. His acts in 1966 brought terror to the campus and to the country in a single day of carnage. This is the story of the University of Texas Tower shooting. Before we get to the day of the shooting, let's first dive into the life of the shooter. Charles Joseph Whitman was born on June 24, 1941 in Lake Worth, Florida. He had two younger brothers and his parents were Charles and Margaret Whitman. His father was said to have been raised in an orphanage and would later become an authoritarian as both a husband and a father. It was said that the elder Charles demanded perfection from his family and anything less resulted in severe abuse, physically, emotionally, and psychologically, to both his wife and his children. The younger Charles was said to be an extremely intelligent and polite child. An IQ test revealed that he had an IQ of 139, which is near genius level. He was an excellent student, but his studies were conducted under fear. Any amount of failure resulted in severe punishment from his father, usually in the form of physical abuse. Both of the Charleses would often go shooting together. His father had a love for firearms and marksmanship, a trait he passed down to his sons. They would spend a lot of time in the woods hunting animals together, and it was said that by age 16, the younger Charles could shoot the eye out of a squirrel. Charles joined the Boy Scouts in 1952 at the age of 11. One year later, or at around 12 years and three months old, he obtained the rank of Eagle Scout. He was the youngest recipient of that honor at the time. And this is where I'll take an aside. I got my Eagle Scout in 1997, I think. I was 16 years old uh, when I got my Eagle Scout. And it I don't know what the requirements were like back in 1952 they probably were a little more lax because i can't imagine there's there's a lot of stuff between when you join the boy scouts and getting your eagle scout badge there's a lot of ranks there's a lot of merit badges required merit badges and then a eagle scout project that you undertake before you can actually be considered an eagle scout and for most scouts, it takes almost their entire time, roughly somewhere between five and six years in scouts to, to achieve it. Most don't, but those that do, again, it takes them most of their time. Uh, so to achieve it in roughly a year, uh, either he did nothing else during this time, which we're gonna find out isn't true. Either he did nothing else during this time and just focused on school and scouts, or again, maybe the requirements were a little more lax, but he definitely dedicated himself to obtaining this Eagle Scout. And again, to, to have done it in such a short amount of time and at such a young age, it either shows how dedicated and intelligent he was or how oppressive his father was towards him getting this goal, or maybe it's a combination of both. And then, as I mentioned, he wasn't. this wasn't the only thing he was working on. While he was flying through the ranks of the Boy Scouts, Charles also became an accomplished pianist and began a large paper route to make money. A couple years later, he entered high school in 1955 in West Palm Beach, Florida. And shortly after starting school, he had saved enough money from his paper route to buy a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, which replaced his bicycle on his newspaper route. 
Charles was a moderately popular student in school, and one month before his 1959 graduation, he secretly joined the U.S. Marine Corps, purposely not telling his parents. He would go on to tell a friend that he joined the military because a month before he enlisted, his father beat him severely and threw him in the family pool because Charles had been out drinking with friends. Charles graduated seventh in his class and shipped off for basic training at Paris Island. His father soon discovered what had happened and tried calling members of the federal government to override his enlistment and return him home. The efforts failed and Charles trained up before shipping off to Guantanamo Bay for his first part of his 18-month enlistment. It, it was actually a five-year enlistment, but we're going to talk about how after 18 months he makes a little bit of a change here. Now, during that 18 months, the marksmanship skills that he honed as a child were highly lauded, and he earned his sharpshooter badge for high rifle marksmanship. This, however, is not considered expert, and his score was a 215 out of 250. Still, he was said to be proficient at hitting targets at distance and while on the move, which are two of the harder tasks in marksmanship. And despite what later media accounts would claim, he was never trained as a sniper in the military. And this is kind of an important. A lot of guys will talk about being snipers in the military. And, and there are some guys who, with really good marksmanship, uh, they kind of take on that role to a certain degree. But there's an actual school in the military, and it's different schools for the different branches, but that you go through to actually obtain a, a quote-unquote sniper designation. And in order to get into this school, first off, you know, a 215 out of 250, I don't know what the Marine Corps, what their marksmanship test consists of. Uh, and I don't know if it's changed since back in the uh, early 1960s. It's, it's very possible that it has. Uh, in the Army, our marksmanship test was usually on a range where you had targets that popped up between... 50 meters and 300 meters and it was just a silhouette of a man popping up from that distance uh, when I first started in 1999 we only had iron sights on the rifles so you're using an iron peep sight setup and at 300 meters which is roughly three football fields away when you put the front sight aperture uh, the front sight post on that target at 300 meters the in your line of vision, that tiny little post on your rifle is actually about three times to four times as wide as that target is at that distance. So it's not a very easy shot to hit. Now, the 300 meter targets stay up longer than the 50 meter targets. So you have a better chance to kind of really focus on some of your basic rifle marksmanship training in order to hit that target uh, but in the military i remember you had to or the army i should say you had to score i want to say it was 36 or 37 out of 40 targets in order to be considered an expert marksman and then there was a certain threshold below that that you were a, a sharpshooter and then below that i think you just got your marksman which basically just meant you qualified so you could only miss i want to say it was three or four targets during your rifle marksmanship in the army to be considered expert and so this 215 out of 250 i'm gonna guess 
kind of similar to hitting maybe the low 30s of targets in the army so he was by far not considered a a really good marksman but at the same time there's a big difference too between hitting these stationary targets that are popping up and hitting targets at distance and targets on the move and that's kind of comes back to more of that hunting with his father as he's growing up it's his ability to hit a small tar- small moving target like a squirrel that's that's a pretty difficult marksmanship task uh, compared to hitting a target that's sitting still you know that, that's close to you so so again he's he's considered to be a good marksman but by no means is he considered you know is he trained as a sniper or has any sniper training during his time in the military now, as I mentioned, he had this initial assignment of, of roughly 18 months, and during this time, he applied and tested for a scholarship for the Naval Enlisted Science and Education Program. And if you've ever worked for the government or been in the military, you understand that everything has an acronym. They have these super long names. Uh, and so in this case, it's shortened to NESEP. And basically, it was a program that enlisted Uh, military personnel and there's in the military you have enlisted personnel and you have officers Uh, officers are higher educated trained uh, soldiers that have designated leadership responsibilities and these are your lieutenants your captains your majors all the way up to your general and in order to be commissioned you have to have a college degree and have gone through some type of commissioning program this is where a lot of the ROTC on campuses those are officer training courses that are put on by through schools some students will do that it gets their education paid for then they have a time of of service after they've graduated uh, that they serve as an officer in one of the the branches and so Charles took kind of a, a roundabout way to escape his father, he enlists, and then once he's enlisted, he realizes with his intelligence level, he could probably be an officer, and as a part of his attempt to become an officer, he's going to get to go to college, which is going to be paid for by the scholarship program. He just has to apply and test, and he does score well in his exams and is accepted into the program. Uh, he first completes some prep courses at a school in Maryland before he was approved to transfer to the University of Texas, Austin, where he would pursue an engineering degree. And his time at the school started in 1961, and it was said he was initially a poor student, spending more time playing practical jokes and getting in trouble for gambling. In one case, he was caught poaching a deer and butchering it in the dormitory shower. And for this illegal act, uh, taking the deer out of season without a permit, he was fined $100 or roughly what would be $1,000 today. And fellow students said he had a morbid sense of humor and often made strange remarks, once mentioning how he could keep an army at bay from a shooting position on the school's main clock tower. And oftentimes when 18-year-old or 19-year-old quote-unquote kids go off to college, they, they struggle with the freedom. They're used to that high school schedule they're used to having their parents make sure they're getting their homework done whatever it might be so just a normal student often does struggle during that first year of college however if you look at charles's situation 
he's used to being under the boot of his father and living in that fear that if he fails, he's going to get physically or emotionally, psychologically abused or all of the above. So this is the first time in his life. And, and he excelled in the military because, again, it's kind of like being under the boot of your father when you're in the military, especially basic training. Any mistake you made is going to be met with physical punishment. Uh, so he would have transitioned into that life from what he grew up with rather easily. But now when you go off to college, and this is the early 60s, there's a lot of freedom, there's a lot of free thinking, and this is something he's not used to, so he's going to make some bad decisions, he's going to kind of you know, experiment with life in general, I guess, at this point, and it's going to affect his, his overall studies. Also during his spring semester at the school, he meets and falls in love with a woman named Kathleen Leisner. And because of his time in the military, he was two years her senior. Uh, and after only five months of dating, they announced their engagement. And then a month later, on August 17th, 1962, they were married on Charles's parents' 22nd wedding anniversary. And this was mentioned in the, the source material, and it just kind of made me take a step back and think. He's got a lot of emotional scars from his parents' marriage. Uh, he watched his father beat his mother on a regular occasion. And so... By no means was their marriage a poster marriage uh, or anything that they want to replicate. And you would actually say later on that he was trying to actively avoid becoming his father. So it does seem strange that they picked his parents' actual wedding anniversary to be the day that they got married on it. Again, maybe this was something more popular back in the day. Maybe it was you know, a way of showing respect to your parents. I don't know. It just seems like today that's not something that that crosses people's minds. Maybe if you got married on like your grandparents' wedding date as a homage to your grandparents, I guess I could see that in today's world. But sharing an anniversary date with your parents, be kind of like sharing an anniversary date with a sibling or something like that. It's just kind of one of those. Now it's a social faux pas, so I don't. Again, I, I just noticed that, saw it in the source material, it was mentioned, and thought it was kind of strange. Now, the families appeared to approve of the young love, with Kathleen's family describing Charles as a handsome young man who was intelligent and aspirational. And then from what I could tell, Charles and his father must have at least made some form of amends, as there was no mention of animosity at the wedding. And this is one of those things where I kind of figured if, if there were still some issues from Charles running off and joining... Uh, the Marines. It, it did say that Charles' family attended the the wedding, including his mother and his father. So it's not like they weren't on speaking terms, and the, his father didn't come. His father was there, but it didn't mention did not mention anything about outright hostility or animosity. So again, I'm, I'm assuming it's water under the bridge at this point to a certain degree. Uh, everybody's supporting this young couple that's in love. And Charles was able to recover some of his grades from his poor start his freshman year, but it wasn't enough, and by the middle of his sophomore year, his scholarship was revoked, and he went back to serving his active duty time to finish his five-year enlistment. So from what I understood, he signed this initial five-year enlistment with the Marine Corps. So he was supposed to serve you know, five years in a Marine Corps unit, and he, he started that with 18 months in Guantanamo Bay, 
but then he applied for this program and if he stayed in school graduated with a degree and went through the officer training course he could become this officer in the military with an engineering degree it was paid for by the school and then usually i think it's somewhere between a six and ten year commitment he would have had as an officer after he graduated college so that was kind of the path that he thought he was on and then all of a sudden after a year and a half at school going through this program he's pulled back so now he's got about two years left to finish his five-year enlistment and while serving the rest of his enlistment two events happened that may have changed things for the young man during a jeep ride with a fellow marine the driver lost control and the jeep flipped and went down an embankment the other marine was pinned under the jeep and charles lifted the jeep off the other man before collapsing into a coma he regained consciousness and was released from the hospital after four days however it's likely he suffered a serious head injury from the accident and i didn't read about the serious head injury i'm just putting that in there because i just have to imagine that this is a military jeep they're likely not wearing seat belts so when it's rolled or, or whatever it did down this embankment charles was likely thrown from the jeep or at least inside the jeep he's thrown around likely hits his head because it said he was groggy but still able to lift this jeep off of his fellow marine but then he collapsed so my guess is again he had either a severe concussion or some type of serious brain injury that put him into this short-term coma and then as the military is they're not the best when it comes to medical injuries basically any time that i was sick or injured in the military the joke is that medics would just give you orange juice and 800 milligram motrin and then send you back out uh, and you know whether it was military doctors or dentists you didn't often didn't want to go to one of these doctors or dentists because their whole job was just to get you back out uh, as quickly as possible so it's, it's very possible that Charles had some serious and long-term uh, consequences from this injury but because he's in the military he's not in the private sector uh, he probably was just told to, to suck it up and, and keep moving forward now, in July of 1963 Charles had obtained the rank of Lance Corporal and likely because of his intelligence and his drive he would have advanced into the role of a non-commissioned officer shortly after this but he was caught gambling and loan sharking and he received a summary court-martial under what's called the Universal Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ. And this is a separate, basically kind of a laws and, and regulations that covers all of the military uh, service members. And it's, it's a way that military can keep control and order over military personnel and it's different than how civilians are going to be treated now they have some of the same rights and and that kind of stuff but basically if you get yourself in trouble at a high level in, in the military you're going to go under this ucmj uh, likely go before some type of a, a board or a panel made of, of military judges of of, of officers and in some cases you can have a full-on court-martial other cases you can have a summary court-martial uh, but basically a decision is going to be made for punishment and in this case charles is going to be reduced to the rank of private which is the lowest rank 
in in the Marine Corps. He was the third rank as a lance corporal, and he's getting busted back down to the first rank, and he had to serve 90 days of hard labor. By 1965, Charles had completed his five-year enlistment. When he returned to the University of Texas, his grades improved, and he volunteered with the Boy Scouts and worked as a bank teller, insurance agent, and a real estate broker. And his wife had graduated from school while he was serving the rest of his enlistment, and she had obtained work as a teacher in the Austin area. In early 1966, his parents' divorce hit a breaking point, and his mother left his father on March 2nd. This was said to be the results of 25 years of chronic abuse, and it's likely she tolerated things until the last child was out of the house before she made the decision to leave this abusive marriage. It was said that Charles worried his father would attack his mother while she was packing her things, so we actually called to have a police officer present while she packed. And this happens quite often. We call them civil standbys when I was in law enforcement where a crime hasn't occurred, but you're worried that it could. And so you have a police officer come and basically keep the peace uh, between two parties in a civil situation, like somebody moving out. Uh, it helps hopefully prevent any violence between the parties and it also can prevent uh, a lot of that he said she said he said he said she said she said whatever stuff then court if you've got a police officer there that's listening so afterwards somebody isn't saying hey he threatened my life or he said he was going to kill me the police officer's there somebody's less likely to file either some type of false report or it's just unlikely that somebody's going to say that stuff in the first place so it's said that Charles arranged the civil standby, was able to get his mother and her things out of the, the father's house, and then he helped her get back to Austin with him, where he helped her get an apartment in the city, and she would find work as a cashier in a local cafeteria. It was two months later that Charles sought out mental health assistance from a campus psychologist. He volunteered that he was under immense stress and pressure and was having constant headaches. He admitted to hitting his wife twice during their marriage and feared he would become his father, something he tried very hard not to accomplish. Charles also told the doctor that he was dealing with daily phone calls from his father, who was demanding his help getting his mother to return to Florida to rekindle the marriage. And we see this quite often. It's, it's very clear that Charles's father said that authoritarian and obviously an extreme control freak. And when you have these people, they're so used to having complete and utter control in their life and over the people in their life. And when somebody leaves the situation and takes away that control, they are going to continue to try to control the situation. And in this case, it was calling his son daily to try to convince his son to convince his mother to move back to Florida. And it's at this point, it's reached a level of mental illness for his father. It's not excusable, but he just literally cannot control the fact that he has lost control and this is all that he knows. And, and he's putting all this pressure on Charles, who's going through school, who's struggling with some of the stuff, uh, as we'll find out from the military, and he's struggling from these headaches. We'll find out the reason for that as well. And... So he, he finally reaches his own kind of breaking point. And the doctor notes that Charles had visible hostility towards others during their hour-long session. And Charles actually mentioned shooting people at random from the University of Texas Tower. 
and the doctor advised him to come back a second time, which was a request that Charles never complied with. A couple of months later, on July 31, 1966, around 6.45 p.m., Charles used a typewriter to draft a suicide note. The letter stated he would kill his mother and wife before killing people at random. The writing of this note was interrupted by a couple whom the Whitmans were friends with that stopped by to visit. These friends would later say that Charles seemed to be at a place of peace with something, and he made several comments about his wife coming home but never finished his sentences. The visit ended after a few hours when Charles stated that he needed to pick up his wife from her part-time job. And this is something we've talked about before on the podcast. A lot of the times when somebody is under this immense pressure and whether that's that they're suicidal or in this case, a combination of suicidal and homicidal, once they've reached the point in which they've made this plan, Uh, and they've decided they're going to go through with this plan no matter what it's almost like that stress and the anxiety and the pressure has been relieved and i'm sure these friends were close enough friends to have seen charles in several instances prior to this evening and a lot of people would mention how charles was seemed very wound tight and very short and all that kind of stuff before this day and they made this mental note in their minds like that it seemed like he was relaxed and so at this point they don't know it but he's already made this decision he's already started out this suicides note but instead of being able to finish the note on the typewriter and start some preparation these friends come by unannounced and basically they stay until he has to go pick up Uh, Kathleen from work and he drove to Kathleen's part-time job where she worked as a switchboard operator picked her up and drove her home and by this time was later in the evening and it was believed that Kathleen went directly to bed so Kathleen is a she's a teacher so I'm guessing this part-time job it's summer so she's probably off for the summer she's probably you know instead of sitting around all day um, she's working this other part-time job and to help with bills or whatever it might be she just might be a very driven person as well just like charles was Uh, but this is 1960s most couples only had one car so he's driving to pick her up from the job and bring her back home she probably had a long day so she goes directly to bed Around 12.30 a.m. on August 1st, Charles drove to his mother's apartment and stabbed her to death before putting her on her bed and covering her with sheets. He wrote another suicide note, this time by hand on yellow legal paper, and left the note next to his mother's body. He drove back home, and around 3 a.m., he fatally stabbed his wife while she slept. He then hand-wrote the remainder of the typewritten suicide note from earlier. The notes both stated that he loved his wife and his mother, and he killed them to spare them from the humiliation of what he was about to do. And in the case of his mother, the killing was said to be mercy for the pain and abuse she had suffered from his father for so many years. His vitriol for his father was also outlined in the letters. Charles wrote that he had intense hatred for his father, and this was due to all the physical and emotional abuse the father had inflicted upon the family for so many years. And his hatred for his father was, quote, beyond description, end quote. 
As the morning of August 1st rolled around, Charles rented a moving dolly and then drove to his bank and wrote two checks totaling $250, which is roughly $2,300 today, knowing that these checks would bounce. He cashed one of the checks from his account and another one from his mother's account. He then drove to a hardware store and at 9 a.m. he purchased a 30 caliber M1 carbine, two additional magazines, and eight boxes of ammunition. He told the cashier at the store that he was driving to Florida to hunt wild hogs. And a 30 caliber M1 carbine, uh, if you've ever watched the movie Saving Private Ryan or basically any World War II movie, uh, the M1 Garand is kind of the, the standard issue rifle you'll see in a lot of uh, World War II movies. The 30 caliber M1 carbine was a smaller version of the rifle. It had the capability, it fired smaller bullets, but it had the capability to carry more of these bullets. It was a little bit lighter. And I'm guessing after World War II and after Korea, there was a lot of surplus of these carbines, so it probably would have been pretty cheap for him to drive to a store and pick one of these up. And his next stop was at a gun shop where he purchased four more magazines for the carbine, six more boxes of ammunition, and a can of gun cleaning solvent. His last purchase was a 12-gauge shotgun that he bought from a Sears store. Charles then drove home and sawed off the buttstock and the barrel from the shotgun for use in close quarters combat. Charles had kept his USMC footlocker and he packed it with his purchases from that morning and added a Remington 700 bolt-action rifle, a 35 caliber rifle, three handguns, and 700 rounds of ammunition. For additional supplies, he packed cans of food, coffee, vitamins, amphetamines, aspirin, earplugs, almost four gallons of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, four knives, a small radio, a razor, a bottle of deodorant, and toilet paper. So this is a combination of a Boy Scout being completely prepared as well as that military mentality uh, he's going into a situation where he believes he's going to lay siege upon this campus. And so he's bringing everything he possibly can to be able to stay up in this tower for as long as he can uh, to include toilet paper. And Charles zipped up a blue nylon coverall outfit over his clothing to give himself the appearance of some form of delivery person or janitor, loaded the footlocker into his car, and drove to the University of Texas. He presented a fake ID to the security guard, which granted him a 40-minute parking pass under the false pretense that he was delivering research equipment to the campus. It is believed he entered the main building and headed to the clock tower around 11.30 and set up for the 11.45 student class changeover. At this time, with the class changeover combined with people leaving for lunch breaks, it would be the busiest level of foot traffic on the campus. When he arrived at the elevator with his dolly and footlocker, he found the elevator had been deactivated. An employee named Vera Palmer, thinking he was a repairman, advised him the elevator just needed to be turned on and flipped the switch for Charles. He got into the elevator and thanked the employee. The elevator took him to the 27th floor and he got out and made the final ascension to level 28 on foot. Inside the reception area for the observation deck, he encountered 51-year-old receptionist Edna Townsley. Using the butt of his rifle, he struck her hard enough to split her skull and then drug her body behind a couch. 
Just then, a young couple walked into the reception area from the observation deck. Charles had a rifle in each hand, and they assumed he was there to shoot pigeons and gave a friendly greeting. Charles greeted them back, and they left the area. They would later say they saw a stain near the desk Edna had been sitting at, but thought it was varnish. As soon as the couple exited the reception area, Charles erected a barricade in front of the door using Edna's desk and two chairs. Just as he was about to move on to the observation deck, a family on vacation arrived at the door to reception and tried to push past his barricade. Charles opened fire on the family with a sawed-off shotgun. The shots killed 16-year-old Mark Gabor and his 56-year-old aunt Marguerite Lamport. Mark's brother, 19-year-old Michael, and his mother, 41-year-old Mary, were seriously wounded by the gunfire. 48-year-old Michael Sr. and William Laporte had been behind their families and ran to render aid and then back down to the 27th floor to get help. There they encountered Vera Palmer, the employee who had activated the elevator for Charles. She was on her way to relieve Edna and retreated to the ground floor after being warned about the shooter in the reception area. Charles resecured his barricade and then shot Edna in the head, executing her. He wheeled his footlocker onto the observation deck and wedged the moving dolly against the door before putting on a white headband and putting weapons spread out around the observation deck. At 11.48, Charles opened fire from his elevated position on the tower. He was 231 feet above the ground and he had full range of sight over a large portion of the campus area in front of the main building. His first victim was an 18-year-old student and her unborn child of 18 months. The student would survive, but the unborn child would not. And the next victim was the student's boyfriend with a shot from one of Charles' rifles ending his life. Charles continued to fire upon students, staff, and visitors during the first minutes of confusion and chaos. Many people thought the sounds of gunfire was part of a prank and the people falling down and screaming were either doing it for some sort of dramatic purpose or a distasteful protest against the Vietnam War. It would take a few minutes for people to realize there was a shooter in the tower and Charles used this time to kill and injure several more people. The University of Texas had no campus police department at this time, so a call was made to the Austin Police Department at 11.52 a.m., four minutes into the rampage. Several Austin PD officers and Texas Highway Patrol officers responded to the scene. Billy Speed, an Austin PD patrol officer, was one of the first to arrive. He took cover behind a columned stone wall that had a six-inch space between the columns. A shot from Charles traveled through the space and struck Speed in the chest, killing him. And this is something we'll take a little aside here. I mentioned that Charles is 231 feet above this area. And there's a reason why anytime you read any type of military strategy book or you talk about a major battle, uh, Gettysburg comes to mind. Everybody always wants the high ground because if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to either locate targets on the ground above you or in this case take cover from someone who's at an elevated position they have all of the advantage because their line of sight is looking down and so you have to find an area of cover that is much taller than normal uh, provides 
either cover from completely from the top and your ability to see that person because you're looking up basically underneath them is very very limited so he's charles has the position of advantage here and basically any amount of you showing a part of your body or a head out from cover and he's with his marksmanship skills is able to hit it and several of the other arriving officers took up positions of cover and began shooting back at Charles. They were all hoping to land a miracle shot or at the very least prevent him from shooting freely. This tactic did work as Charles reverted to shooting out of drain holes at the base of the deck, severely limiting his lanes of fire. Charles was still able to inflict further injury and fatalities while being mostly impervious to the incoming fire from below. At this time, 40-year-old Alan Crum, a retired World War II tail gunner, operated a campus bookstore and when he realized what was happening, he rushed to the tower to offer assistance. Upon arriving at the tower, he encountered a Texas public safety officer named William Cowan and Austin police officer Jerry Day. Cowan gave Crum a rifle and the three men proceeded up the elevator of the tower together. Meanwhile, an off-duty officer uh, from Austin PD named Mario Martinez lived near the campus and upon hearing the shooting he called into headquarters and asked how he could help. He was advised to go to the area around the school and help direct traffic away from the scene. When he arrived he found this task was already underway so he ran to the tower and after arriving he took the elevator to the 26th floor and encountered Day, Cowan, and Crum. Another Austin police officer, Houston McCoy, was directed to a series of underground tunnels on the campus by staff. He was able to navigate these tunnels to safely arrive at the main building and ascended the building and encountered the now four-man team on the 28th floor. When the men made it to the top of the tower, they came across the Gabor family. Michael Sr., still in a state of shock and anger over the death of his son and the shooting of his wife and other son, attempted to grab a rifle from the men to go after Charles. He had to be restrained by the officers, and the decision was made to turn off the elevator to prevent any other civilians from coming up the tower. Between the elevator and the reception area, the team came across the bodies of Mark Gabor and his aunt. Michael Jr. had been knocked unconscious during the initial encounter with Charles and was just regaining consciousness. The officers put Mary in a recovery position so she didn't drown in her own blood and moved on to the higher floor. Upon arriving at the highest floor, Crum, the only civilian, requested to be deputized before going into a shootout with Charles. Officer Martinez told Crum to consider himself deputized. They broke through the barricade and into the reception area where they located the mortally wounded Edna. Crum was ordered to hold in place and keep his gun trained in one of the other entrances from the tower to the reception area so Charles couldn't sneak around and attack them from behind. Martinez, Day, and McCoy entered the observation area just as Crum thought he heard footsteps from the shooter outside the door he was covering. He fired a single shot at the door, a shot that would end up distracting Charles into believing an attack was coming from that door. At around 1.24 p.m., roughly 90 minutes after the shooting began, Charles had his gun trained on the door Crum had fired at when Martinez and McCoy rounded the building and came upon him. Martinez opened fire with his revolver, but all of his shots missed Charles. McCoy, armed with a shotgun, also opened fire this time and aimed for a white headband Charles had put on before the shooting. McCoy's shotgun blast hit Charles in the head, killing him instantly. 
Martinez grabbed the shotgun from McCoy and ran up to Charles' lifeless body and shot another round of pellets into the body, striking Charles in the left arm. Martinez was then almost killed by friendly fire from below as his silhouette was mistaken for Charles, with those on the ground unaware the shooter had been neutralized. While McCoy instructed another officer to notify dispatch over the radio that the threat was over, Crum grabbed a white handkerchief and waved it over the side of the tower to order a ceasefire. Media outlets seeing the white flag erroneously stated the shooter was alive and was surrendering to police. For a few minutes after the shooting stopped, people slowly came out from behind the areas they had been hiding for 90 minutes. A reporter would later say that no one talked or looked at each other, they all just stared blankly as if they couldn't quite take in what had just happened. Charles was soon identified via his uh, driver's license and news media's outlets all over the country blasted his name over the radio and TV. Charles Sr., upon hearing his son was the shooter, called Austin PD and gave them the addresses for both his son and his estranged wife. Officers responded to these locations and found the bodies of Margaret and Kathleen along with Charles's suicide notes. At the end of his shooting rampage, Charles has claimed the lives of 17 individuals, including his wife, mother, and the people he killed inside the tower before he opened fire on the campus. A further 31 people were physically wounded by Charles' actions that day. The campus closed the following day, August 2nd, but reopened on August 3rd. The tower's observation deck would stay closed for two years and reopen to the public in 1968. However, after reopening, four students took their own lives from the observation deck between 1968 and 1974, and the decision was made to close the observation deck to the public until 1999. The deck is only open to guided tours, and visitors must pass through a metal detector before going on the tour. After the shooting, Charles was given a full autopsy. A malignant tumor, described as a Glioblastoma multiform was found above his amygdala. While this is still disputed by experts, many believe the change in behavior, headaches, and ultimately the decision to commit mass murder may have been influenced by the rapidly growing tumor. The official autopsy report stated there was a large amount of necrosis of brain tissue around the tumor, and some experts argue Charles's anger and decision-making was influenced by this brain damage. And Charles's upbringing, combined with head trauma and the brain tumor, may have provided the perfect storm for what happened on August 1, 1966. Under constant pressure and abuse from his father, Charles struggled to meet the demands of his life by both his own and others' standards. Had he been raised to fear failure, he would have experienced difficulty in any amount of production that was less than perfect. Although he was an intelligent person, it was said that his weakest areas of study were in fields that were required to pursue engineering, setting him up for eventual life failure in either his studies or his career. Having achieved so much as a child while under constant tension from his father, he likely lacked the skills required to navigate some of the hurdles he faced as he grew older and finally caved to the pressure he was under. While most people would just take their own lives, the combination of his oppressive upbringing, the trauma he experienced, and the influence of the tumor likely all contributed to his decision-making that day. And doing the research for this, I actually looked at the, the function of the amygdala in the brain is processing emotions. So 
any amount of empathy for a fellow human being, all that kind of stuff is going to come from that portion of the brain. And how much of that portion of the brain was damaged or any actual influence that this tumor had on Charles is, is, like I said, it's still hotly debated to this day. Some people firmly believe that you know, this was the final catalyst in a, in a long list of issues for Charles that, that finally just caused him to snap. He didn't see any other way out, and, and this is this is what he saw himself doing. And, and because of the uh, lack of empathy, because of the tumor, uh, he just didn't feel anything for any other humans at this point. And so his years of thinking about going up into this clock tower and shooting people just kind of became... A reality for him I guess to a certain degree and others will argue that the other side of the coin is that this didn't affect his decision making he had mentioned on a couple different occasions to people about how he could go up in this tower and, and shoot people one of them being years before he had this tumor and so it's just possible that absent the tumor he still would have done this he still had enough issues mentally and from his upbringing that this was his, uh, you know, his final calling card to the world. But uh, like I said, I don't know if we'll ever get the true answer to to why he did what he did, other than it was a, probably a combination of everything that he experienced in his life, and, and possibly including the influence from the tumor. Uh, the tragedy did create some change around UT Austin to include the formation of a campus police force and a student-wide medical care program. And although Charles had not seen combat, there was talk of formulating a process for helping military personnel, especially combat armed soldiers, return to civilian life after having been quote unquote programmed to kill. And this is something that's really interesting. Uh, when I first got into the, the military in 1999, we still used what we called the crazy Ivans. When I talked about the basic rifle marksmanship before, uh, on the range, the silhouette that would pop up, whether I was in basic training or even some of the, the ranges later in my career, they had basically, it was an outline of a little guy who looked like he was a, a Soviet soldier. He had a red star on top of his his hat or his helmet, and then he was carrying like, you know, basically a AK rifle, and it's a human-sized target. And what it was explained to me one time, and I don't know if there's truth to this, but it makes sense, is that the reason the targets pop up and pop back down is because that's what you're going to see in combat. And they want to basically program into your brain that if a target presents itself, you don't think about it. You don't think that that's a human being. You don't think of you know the fact that that guy might have a wife and kids or whatever it might be. All you're thinking about is when I when something presents itself, it pops up, I shoot it, it goes back down. Like that's it's and it's programmed. You spend weeks at the range in basic training, you spend time in your military unit at the range shooting targets to the point that it's a conditioned response where you're and the term quote quote program to kill isn't far from what they're trying to do. They want to try to remove that human element where you're going to think about any of that thought process of what I'm doing or why I'm doing it because freezing like that or thinking about that on the battlefield means potentially you're killed or someone else on your side is killed because of that hesitation. 
So they remove that hesitation and they have ways to do it. But then the thought process is there's no way once these people are done, we've used them, they've they've worked through their enlistment, whatever it might be. Now we're going to release them back into society, but they have this quote unquote programming still in their brain that they don't think twice. They just, the threat presents itself and they kill. And this is something we see with police officers too. There's a lot of work that goes into training police officers and there's been a lot of talk about like shoot no shoot situations where you go through simulators and I actually did this in the military too but you'd go through a, a simulation where you, it was a, a pre-recorded video you've got a, a laser activated weapon and when the whatever you see on the screen you're supposed to react as if you are in real life they'll show you a video you're going into a domestic situation and you know the woman screaming at her husband screaming at her husband screaming at her husband and then the next thing you know she pulls a gun and points it at you and of course that's a shoot situation so you're supposed to shoot her and they'll they'll track where your shots are going do you hit the husband do you hit her all that kind of stuff and then they'll say okay we're going to reset they'll put you into that same scenario but this time you know she as she goes to to move away from the husband she grabs a phone or she you know does some other furtive movement but it's not pointing a gun at you and officers especially young officers will shoot immediately because they were just programmed to shoot the time before they don't want to be behind the eight ball on this well we see that same thing if if you don't train that out of people if you don't train proper threat assessment if you don't train all that kind of stuff mistakes can happen especially in high stress situations and so the idea that the human brain has to be first conditioned to kill is accurate because on a whole most people don't want to kill other human beings but then the condition but then the idea that you have to then uncondition them and put them back into society with a respect for human life especially their fellow civilian again this this event caused the military to talk about this and i think this is still something that is the military struggles with today especially after everything we've the country has gone through in the last 20 years is how do you deal with veterans with ptsd that have been programmed uh, a certain way and then now they're back into society and they're dealing with these issues and they've got this quote-unquote programming so it's it's a it's a very still hotly debated topic and this is 60 years after this has happened so uh but we'll we'll wrap things up here sadly charles whitman's decision to take out his rage on innocent civilians has become an all too regular action in today's society his actions back then caused a nationwide discussion about human violence in what some would say was more innocent times Mass shootings are happening at regular intervals all over the world as mental illness and things like the 24-hour news cycle create an atmosphere for too many to aspire to be the next Charles Whitman. And that's it for today's episode. Again, I, I like to try to change things up a little bit. Different types of true crimes doesn't always have to be either stranger homicides or some type of intricate homicide plan uh, doesn't always have to be something that happened in the last 10 years and i like to kind of go all over the country so uh we'll we'll pick up tomorrow with a, a different take on true crime in a different part of the country and uh but that's it thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes 
and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.